Good evening. A Puritan's Mind brings you the old-time radio program, the Wild Boar News Podcast from sunny South Florida. Welcome. I'm Dr. Matthew McMahon. What do we find when entering into Roman Catholicism's borrowing of paganism? We find their continued alliance with breaking the regulative principle and the replacement of true worship with worshiping that which is unholy. They institute unscriptural burdens, such as Lent, fast days, sacred rites, that control their kingdom with superstitions and false religion, guise in the cloak of authority, and hide the truth from people to damn them for all eternity. One such deception is their introduction of the Christian festival of Easter. Look around you, and you will see the worldwide acceptance of the chocolate bunny and hard-boiled egg. It is harmless, right? What do we find when looking at the celebration of Easter? The term Easter is certainly not Christian and is of Chalcedonian origin. Easter is nothing else than Astarte, one of the titles of Beltis, the Queen of Heaven, whose name, as pronounced by the people at Nineveh, was evidently identical with that now in common use today. That name, as found by layered on the Assyrian monuments, is Ishtar, the Devil, or Satan. For information concerning Chalcedonian and Assyrian history, see Alexander Hislop's work, The Two Babylons, which outlines the history behind these pagan origins in great depth. Worship of the devil in this way was introduced to the English people through the Druids who worshipped the devil through nature. Now, take a moment and note that Romanism, or Druidism for that matter, or any other false religion, would not openly say they are worshipping the devil. Of course they would deny it. However, the scripture is exceedingly clear that any doctrine not brought to men through the triune Godhead and the Savior, Jesus Christ, is a doctrine of demons, and therefore a worshipping of the devil. This certainly applies not only to the contemporary church when it introduces destructive heresies or twists Paul words to their own destruction, as Peter says, but also applies to false religions that pull people away from the one true Savior and only God, Jesus Christ. One cannot introduce false religion without partaking of demonic influences and devil worship in that light. As a result of Druidic worship and influences that have penetrated into Romanism, contemporary Christendom of almost every flavor still has those influences lingering today in their worship and their Sunday morning bulletins around the time of Easter or Ishtar. The Druids would worship in lighting a fire in a center circle, and each worshiper putting in a, quote, bit of oat cake in a shepherd's bonnet. They all sit down and draw blindfolded a piece from the bonnet. One piece has been previously blackened, and whoever gets that piece has to jump through the fire in the center of the circle and pay a forfeit. This is, in fact, a part of the ancient worship of Baal and the person on whom the lot fell was previously burnt as a sacrifice, end quote. 
Scripture deems this walking through the fire or fire sacrifice. God condemns the practice of making children walk through the fire in Leviticus 18.21, which he says, quote, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord, end quote. Easter, then, traces back through Astarte, which was also worshipped in ancient times, and that from the name Astarte, whose name in Nineveh was Ishtar, the religious workings during the month of March and April, as now practiced in most of Christendom, are called by the name of Easter. In ancient times, the pagans called this time of year Easter Monath. Even Socrates, the ancient philosopher, describes the different ways in which Easter was observed in different countries in his time during the 5th century. He states, quote, Thus much already laid down may seem a sufficient treatise to prove that the celebration of the Feast of Easter began everywhere more of custom than by any commandment, either of Christ or any apostle. End quote. See, even Socrates, the pagan philosopher, knew Easter was not a Christian doctrine. So where did people begin worshipping gods on Easter? Hislop explains, quote, The forty days of fasting during the Romanist Lent was directly borrowed from the worshippers of the Babylonian goddess. Such a Lent of forty days in the spring of the year is still observed by the Yazidis, or pagan devil worshippers of Kordistan, who have inherited it from their early masters, the Babylonians. It was held in spring by the pagan Mexicans, for thus we read in Humboldt, where he gives an account of Mexican observances, quote, Three days after the vernal equinox began a solemn fast of forty days in honor of the sun. Such a Lent of forty days was observed in Egypt, which was expressly in commemoration of Adonis, or Osiris, the great mediatorial god. At that time, the rape of Prospering seems to have been commemorated, and in similar manner, for Julius Firmicius informs us that for, quote, forty nights the wailing for Prospering continued, and from Arnabius we learn that the feast which the pagans observed called Castus, or the sacred fast, was, by the Christians in his time, believed to have been primarily an imitation of the long feast of Siras, when for many days she determinedly refused to eat on account of her excess of sorrow, that is, on account of the loss of her daughter Prosperine, when carried away by Pluto, the god of hell. As the stories of Bacchus, or Adonis, and Prosperine, though originally distinct, were made to join on and fit into one another, so that Bacchus was called Liber, and his wife Adrienne Libera, which was one of the names of Prosperine, it is highly probable that the forty days fast of Lent was made in latter times to have reference to both. Among the pagans, this Lent seems to have been an indispensable preliminary to the great annual festival in commemoration of the death and resurrection of Tammuz, which is celebrated by alternate weeping and rejoicing, and which in many countries was considerably later than the Christian festival, being observed in Palestine and Assyria in June, therefore called, quote, the month of Tammuz. In Egypt, about the middle of May, and in Britain it was during the time of April. To conciliate the pagans to nominal Christianity, the Romanists and the Papists, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated. 
and by a complicated but skillful adjustment of the calendar, it was found no difficult matter, in general, to get paganism and Christianity, which was now very far sunk in idolatry, in this as in so many other things, to shake hands. The instrument in accomplishing this amalgamation was the abbot Dionysus the Little, to whom also we owe it, as modern chronologers have demonstrated, that the date of the Christian era, or of the birth of Christ himself, was moved four years from the true time. Whether this was done through ignorance or design may be a matter of question, but there seems to be no doubt of the fact that the birth of the Lord Jesus was made full four years later than the truth. This change of the calendar in regard to Easter was attended with momentous consequences. It brought into the church the grossest corruption and the rankest superstition in connection with the abstinence of Lent. Let anyone only read the atrocities that were commemorated during the sacred fast or pagan Lent as described by Arnabius and Clemens Alexandrianus, and surely he must blush for Christianity of those who, with the full knowledge of all these abominations, went down to Egypt for help to stir up the languid devotion of the degenerate church, and who could find no more excellent way than to revive it than by borrowing from so polluted a source the absurdities and abominations connected with which the early Christian writers had held up to scorn. That Christians should ever think of introducing the pagan abstinence of Lent was a sign of evil. It showed how low they had sunk, and it was also a cause of evil. It inevitably led to deeper degradation. Originally, even in Rome, Lent, with the preceding revelries of the carnival, was entirely unknown. And even when fasting before the Christian Pascal was held to be necessary, it was by slow steps that in this respect it came to conform with the ritual of paganism. What may have been the period of fasting in the Roman Church before the sitting of the Nicene Council does not very clearly appear, but for a considerable period after that council we have very distinct evidence that it did not exceed three weeks. So we have the history of Easter and its popular observances today confirm the testimony of history as to its Babylonian character, such as things like the hot-crossed buns, or Easter eggs, or candy coming out of pomegranates and oranges. Think for a moment, Christian. The hot-crossed buns of Good Friday and the dyed eggs of Easter Sunday, where do they come from? They were figured in the Chaldean rites, just as they do now. The buns were used in the worship of the Queen of Heaven, the goddess Ishtar, as early as the days of Cecrops, the founder of Athens, that is, 1,500 years before the Christian era. Jeremiah 7:18 states, The children gather wood, the fathers kindle fire, and the women need dough to make cakes for the Queen of Heaven, and they pour out drink offerings to other gods, to provoke me to anger." End quote. Jeremiah uses the word bun, which is where the concept was derived. The Hebrew word was pronounced kavan, which in Greek became sometimes kafanos. The Hebrew shows how kavan, pronounced as one syllable, chan, would pass into the Latin panis, which means bread. And the second, how, in like manner, kavan would become bon or bun. The hot cross buns are not now offered, but they're eaten, 
and they're tasty on the festival of Astarte. But this leaves no doubt as to where the original idea came from. What about Easter eggs, or rather, Ishtar eggs? Where do we get bunnies and eggs and baskets and egg hunts during a Christian holy day? The origin of the Paschal eggs is just as pagan. The ancient Druids bore an egg as the sacred emblem of their order. Reverend Hislop says, quote, In the Dionysianica, or Mysteries of the Bacchus, as celebrated in Athens, one part of the nocturnal ceremony consisted in the consecration of an egg. The Hindu fables celebrate their mundane eggs as a golden color. The people of Japan make their sacred egg to have been brazen. In China, it was dyed or painted and used in sacred festivals, even as it is today in the United States. In ancient times, eggs were used in religious rites from the Egyptians and the Greeks, and were hung up for mystic purposes in their temples. From Egypt, these sacred eggs can be distinctly traced to the banks of the Euphrates. The classic poets are full of the fable of the mystic egg of the Babylonians. Hyginus, the poet, states, quote, An egg of wondrous size is said to have fallen from heaven into the river Euphrates. The fishers rolled it to the bank, where the doves, having settled upon it and hatched it, out came Venus, who afterwards was called the Syrian goddess, that is, Astarte, or Easter. So the Easter egg becomes one of the symbols of Astarte, and its occult meaning had reference to the ark during the time of the flood, in which symbolically the whole human race were shut up, as the chick is enclosed in the egg before it's hatched. The egg, then, became used as a symbol for the whole world as Noah and his family after the destruction of the whole world floating on the waters of the flood. Hislop states, quote, The coming of the egg from heaven evidently refers to the preparation of the ark by express appointment of God. And the same thing seems clearly implied in the Egyptian story of the mundane egg, which is said to have come out of the mouth of the great God. The doves resting on the egg need no explanation. This, then, was the meaning of the mystic egg in one respect. As, however, everything that was good or beneficial to mankind was represented in the Chaldean mysteries as in some way connected with the Babylonian goddess, so the greatest blessing to the human race, which the ark contained in its bosom, was held to be Astarte, who was the great benefactor of the world. Though the deified queen, whom Astarte represented, had no actual existence till some centuries after the flood, Yet, through the doctrine of metempsychosis, which was firmly established in Babylon, it was easy for her worshippers to be made to believe that in a previous incarnation she lived in the antediluvian world and passed in safety through the waters of the flood on the ark. Now the Romish church adopted this mystic egg of Astarte and consecrated it as a symbol of Christ's resurrection. A form of prayer was even appointed to be used in connection with it, Pope Paul V teaching his superstitious votaries thus to pray at Easter this specific prayer, quote, Bless, O Lord, we beseech thee, this thy creature of eggs, that it may become a wholesome sustenance unto thy servants, eating it in remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. That Semiramis, under the name of Astarte, was worshipped not only as an incarnation of the Spirit of God, but as the mother of mankind, we have very clear and satisfactory evidence. There is no doubt that the Syrian goddess was Astarte. Now, the Assyrian goddess, or Astarte, is akin to simply worshipping the devil. 
Astarte is not Jesus Christ, is not the triune Godhead, is not biblical, but everything that God prohibits. The bunny with its fertility connotations and the ancient pagan festivals that use rabbits as symbols of fertility in Babylonian times, or the use of eggs, or the use of candy, which actually derives from the use of pomegranates and oranges that were also used in pagan rituals, is identified as devil worship by any thinking Christian. It is no wonder that the use of the symbol of the dove itself as a Christian symbol did not come from the idea of the spirit resting as a dove upon Christ during his baptism, but as a representative of the mother of the gods, in whom that spirit was said to be incarnate, was celebrated as the originator of some of the useful arts and sciences. And we find very readily in Greek mythology that the character attributed to the Minerva, whose name Athena is a symbol for Beltis, the well-known name of the Assyrian goddess. Athena, the Minerva of the Athens, is universally known as the goddess of wisdom, the inventress of arts and sciences, and has as a symbol, you guessed it, the dove. We have Rome borrowing pagan rituals to change the date of Christ's entrance into the world by four years to compensate amalgamating the celebration of devil worship with Christianity. The adoption of Ishtar or Astarte, Easter, as a papist degradation of worship. The violation of the regulative principle in deeming a day to be worshipped as such. The entrance of eggs from druidic worship, or pomegranates and oranges that turned into chocolate bunnies and Ishtar eggs for a candy basket to give on Easter Sunday. And the Babylonian influences of pagan rituals through every aspect of Easter. And we find you... Listener, going out this week to apply this all to little Johnny and little Debbie because everyone else is doing it at church, so I should do it for my little children as well. If you want to be a papist, then call yourself a papist, or a druid, or a Grecian worshipper of the devil. Don't call yourself Christian by upholding a blatantly obvious demonic holy day that God abhors. When you partake of such wicked schemes, God's anger is aroused. And he states in Deuteronomy 32:17, They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. When you give your child their Easter basket filled with papist inventions, recall God's words and heed the psalmist in Psalm 106:37. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Know that you serve the same blasphemies that Romanism has brought into Christendom, and that the Scripture rightly warns the covenant people of God that they should abstain from such things and be separate. 1 Timothy 4.1 states, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. End quote. When you worship using the devil's teachings, you give heed to demonic influences and introduce them to your children. Now, you might say, hey, come on, it's just a chocolate bunny and some jelly beans and a few hard-boiled eggs, right? Well, no. It is a giving of your mind and heart and children and family over to the trinkets of the devil and the worship of his holy day that has been resurrected and founded on demonic influences and teachings. 
It is devil worship. If you celebrate Ishtar, Easter, you spit in the face of Jesus Christ, who is to be worshipped not on one day in the year on Resurrection Sunday, but all the days of all your life. He is the Redeemer of the covenant people of God always and every day. There is a great difference between the works of the devil and the works of the triune God. The devil deceives by subtle manipulation. You know, hey, Easter is not all that bad. And the triune Godhead, who commands nothing more than perfect obedience to his will and his word. Thou shalt not worship any other gods, nor shall you worship God according to the commandments of men. The devil wants you to worship Jesus Christ in the manner that demonic teachings lay out Easter. But God commands you to worship him as his word dictates. Deuteronomy 4.2 states, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. The devil is the father of lies and wants you to believe the lie that Easter is a Christian holiday like Lent and Christmas. But our true Father is in heaven who commands us today, as Acts 17:30 and 31 states, to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead, who is Jesus Christ. Talk about that day, judgment day, and wonder, Christian, if you will stand when he appears. There is safety in appearing in the righteousness of Christ on the day of judgment, but there is no safety in any degree of compromises for the sake of a few jelly beans. Now, in closing, I do not want Christians to be leery of buying a bag of jelly beans or eating a Cadbury egg. It is not that jelly beans or chocolate bunnies are evil in and of themselves. Buy some jelly beans during the 4th of July and have at them. Make some chocolate bunnies and eat them up during January or September. But do not associate yourself or your family with the Romanist amalgamation of pagan rituals during the March-April time of Lent, Good Friday, Palm Sunday, and Ishtar, or Easter. Those associations are in direct violation of God's commands. And those associations overrule your plea to Christian liberty because God is very clear about His worship. As Revelation 19.10 states, Worship God. This is Dr. McMahon signing off. Keep checking back at A Puritan's Mind for more on the Gospel, Reformed and Puritan Theology, and more of the Wild Boar, visit www.apuritansmind.com Com. For more on Reformed and Puritan theology, visit www.apuritansmind.com. Good night, then, until this same time next week. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. 
We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.